0: And welcome to this episode of the Views from the Bath podcast. As promised last week, we are going to do a little bit of a another episode in our series of how to watch a sport. Um, this week, we're recording the day after the first uh, race of the, the Formula One season, so we are going for how to watch Formula One. We're all sort of Formula One fans. From I at least, I've been a Formula One fan for for quite a long time. I, I can remember. I think my my favourite driver being Jensen Button from early on and then and one of the probably the two thousand nine season being a really big season for me and, and my enjoyment of the sport. What
1: was it, what was you guys' first memories of, of Formula One? Ooh, that's taking me back. I think it must have been around two thousand and two or two thousand and three. So I've been a huge fan of Formula One pretty much as long as I can remember, to be honest. And I think my first race I ever watched was a race in Germany at the Nürburgring, and it was incredibly wet. And basically, both of the Schumacher brothers led the field by about a lap by the end of the race, and <laughs> no one even got close to them. And yeah, since then, I've watched just about every race that I can do, and I've loved the sport up through from when Michael Schumacher was racing Jensen Button the vettel years and then on to now where it's been a Mercedes dominant time for the last sort of seven years now. So yeah, <laughs> I, I can say that I've I've certainly been a fan for a very long time. And you Ed?
2: I dunno, um I wouldn't say I was overly into F ones during school. I think sometimes uh, I'd get to sit down on a Sunday afternoon and hide away and watch the F1 by myself but I, I think I've more got into it over I'd say the past sort of four, four or five years so at university it's just something uh, I talking to people who, who are doing mechanical engineering and actually understanding a bit more about the behind the scenes work that goes on it, it's just really exciting to, to watch it and slowly get into it more and more so i, I think i can give a good viewpoint of things that are, may not be obvious when you start first start watching but are actually quite important to know that's true
0: so i think this is also the the sport where where again we found a, another sport which is a very complicated way of of finding out who's the fastest to the finish line. Which is all of the sports we've we've kind of done this for before. So we we want to give a kind of beginner's guide and explain it. So so as we said, the the aim of the game, and the aim of the sport is to is to finish each race as with as highest placing as, as you can. So and ideally to win the race. But there's there's a huge amount going on around that. David, do you want to explain kind of the format? We we describe it kind of as a weekend because uh, the. The whole whole race each time is uh, it's taken. It happens over a weekend. Each race happens at a different location, and that we we take the whole circus of Formula One to a new location for, and then have a race weekend, and then it moves on to
1: another location. So, what happens in a week? In a given weekend, there typically starts on a Friday where there are two practice sessions which give the drivers an opportunity to learn the circuit, as some circuits are new, and also revisit for those that have already been there before, and understand how quick the cars will go around the circuit and what the setup of the car will be in order to go fastest. And that's the main aim for the Friday practice, where there are two sessions. On the Saturday, you have another practice session, which is normally used as a way to tune up the cars in preparation for the afternoon which is where qualifying happens and qualifying for F1 defines where in the grid on the race which happens on a Sunday you are so the fastest person to do a lap in qualifying will be on pole position in the first place and then consecutively after that will be each person based on their time in qualifying now the format has become a little bit more complicated for qualifying over the time that I've been watching, at least when I first watched. It was literally everyone was able to go out for one or two runs, record a time, and then you were ordered based on that. Whereas now there's slightly more of a knockout or elimination phase where in two the first two sessions of qualifying, the bottom four in each session are eliminated and then the rest of the drivers go through to the next session where they can set another time and then the next four eliminated and then they set another time in the final session and that defines the top 10 so that's how the qualifying is done and then those positions are kept for the start of the race on a Sunday where races are typically around two hours long if not slightly less and that usually equates to maybe 40 to 60 laps of a given circuit because the circuits are all different and have different lengths and therefore mean that you have a different number of laps to make it roughly the same amount of time racing in each of them. And generally speaking, the start of these races is where the most action happens because all the drives are really close together having just got off the start line. You'll see lots of overtakes as everyone figures out what the order is going to be for the race. Beyond that, you usually have a sort of a, a more of a middle section where perhaps less is happening on the track. There are, there are fewer overtakes between cars, but it's a very much a tactical game of when you want to make pit stops, which is when the drivers come into the pits to change tyres and get a fresh set of tyres, which become make the car a lot faster compared to an old set of tyres. So there's a lot of tactics involved in when you want to pit to give yourself an advantage by being on a fresh set of tyres and therefore being able to go out and potentially make up a lot of time or overtake your competitors. And then finally, towards the end of the race, the culmination of all those tactics between all of the teams comes together. And that can also be very exciting because you have different cars on different strategies where some might be or some might have only pitted once or twice in the race and therefore have really old tyres at the end and are struggling to just about make it to the end of the race and won't be going as quickly as someone who maybe pitted very recently towards the end and therefore has very fresh tyres and is able to make up a potentially a lot of places in a lot of time because they're so much quicker towards the end of the race. So that can cause a massive shift in the fi- finishing positions right at the end in the final few laps. So as a viewer usually the start and the end are the most exciting parts but the middle has its importance as well because of that tactical nature and all of the different strategies going on between the different teams
0: I think the commentators uh, put it nicely this weekend in the first race when they, when they say when you could, after the start of it it was the time to put your kettle on through the middle of while we waited. And I think it is the criticism that's often levelled at F1 from a viewing perspective is that we're... From an outside perspective, a lot of the time people look at it as, oh, it's lots of cars following each other. It doesn't seem very exciting. But, yeah, the the most exciting times in F1 are always the points of difference. And so that is that is at the start when you when everything is very close together and it's it's easy to to make up large amounts of ground. And then at pit stops where cars being stationary coming in coming out that's those are points of difference and then towards the end when strategies are coming together it's when it's exciting
2: so if through through qualifying is it is there any actual benefit to getting into the later rounds because i think this is the thing that confused me when i was first started watching it was they go through the first round of qualifying and they try and set the fastest lap and Obviously somebody did, and wh- wh- why do they need multiple rounds? And surely, it. Wh- how does it benefit uh, a team to to go in the later rounds? Because with, with recent sort of tyre limitations of how many you're allowed to use in the weekend and things like that, it seems like it all, could almost be counterproductive in some cases.
1: So for some circuits where overtaking is a lot harder, being further up the grid is makes a huge difference. So if you're in the top five, if you're in on pole position, you're so much more likely to win the race than if you were in 10th or 15th place. So in that sense, it's absolutely key to be in that final session of qualifying and set the fastest time. Furthermore, at least for the final session of the qualifying, so Q3, each of the teams is giving an extra set of tyres in order to run in that session, so that they're not penalised compared to those that were in the previous sessions. So, in that in that way, it kind of balances out that idea of wasting tyres or burning tyres in qualifying that you might want in the race.
0: Yeah, it's it's a balance to be had, and I think there there is sometimes debate about this. So another technicality we're getting a little bit down into technicalities here, but is that those who get into the final top 10 shootout as it's called the final session have to start the race on the tires that they use for for to set those uh, the lap in the in the top 10 shootout whereas people who are 11th and 12th get to and further down get to choose the tires they want to start on so there there is some debate about whether if you're 11th and 12th maybe maybe you want to have that tyre choice and not have to do the extra running in, in qualifying but there are some races as you said like for example most of the street circuits and, and especially Monaco where people argue that the race is won on Saturday because it's so difficult to get past and it's no good saying oh well I'm not going to push in qualifying because I want to save, save tyres or whatever it is because you can't win if you're from 20 on the grid. It was pointed out to me, it's not always obvious that the format of, of F1 is, is a world championship. So there is no other cups going alongside it, no other competitions going alongside it other than a world championship. And this is split up into two parts, a championship for the drivers and a championship for the constructors. So each team is built up of two drivers and there are 20 drivers on the grid, so 10 teams on the grid. And uh, the total of each team, so both of their drivers' totals are put together to, to, to give the constructors' total over the, their season, and uh, each driver gets points over uh, a season based on, on where they finish. The aim is, over the season, to at every race score as many points as possible to, to win either or both of those championships. To be a world championship, you kind of you have to go to lots of places, and this year is, is exciting because it will be if if everything happens, the longest season and and the world championship visiting the largest amount of places ever. So, what are
1: the new circuits for this year, David? This year, we have I believe two new circuits. Um, one is a circuit which is very much steeped in F one history, and was raced on in the 1950s and 1960s, and then had some time off, was not chosen as a circuit for a number of years, and now was due to return last year. But because of the COVID pandemic, the race was canceled there, and this is Zandvoort in the Netherlands. Now, this was a very exciting circuit in history. However, for the cars, and because they're so fast these days, I think it's gonna feel very small and very narrow because the cars are just so quick and so much larger than they were in perhaps the 70s and the 60s. So I'm excited to see racing there, but I'm not holding out as much hope for perhaps an exciting race in terms of overtaking because I think it will just be, it will feel very small in these cars there. But it's certainly a very historic site and one that deserves to be on the F1 calendar. The second race is perhaps a little bit more contentious in its selection, and that's in Jeddah, in Saudi Arabia. And this is a brand new circuit for this year. It's it's a street circuit, and it's the first time that F1 will race in Saudi Arabia. Now, of course, I, I, I speak probably for all of us by saying that choosing to race in Saudi Arabia, given that their history on human rights and other issues, makes it quite problematic it seems very much like this case of sport washing in the sense that you have a government in a country with so many atrocities occurring in it and yet the whole F1 circus is going to rock up into town and try and put a the country in a positive light which I don't think that Formula one should be doing although saying that it of course has a very strong and unfortunate history in doing this in that It also goes to countries like Bahrain, like Russia, China and a number of others, which all have history of human rights abuses. So in a sense, it's nothing new for Formula One to be going to a country like this, but I still am not pleased to see this decision being made.
0: Yeah, yeah. It seems to go against the re- we races one campaign that they've been running and and so heavily promoting over the last few years. Yeah, it seems to be counter of that. But uh, to some extent, with Formula One, uh, it's one of the biggest sports where money talks. And to be honest, the circuit looks really good. Uh, and if it was anywhere else, it'd be a it would probably be a very interesting track and would be a, a great race. But in it, given its location, it is a little bit sad that we're going to. But then, and yeah, I think one of the reasons it, to point out that the money talks a lot is that you have to have a track that is able to hold to host Formula One. Formula One has some really stringent requirements on on which race tracks could hold it. They they have to meet a certification that the FIA the governing body for for motorsports, puts together. And this is for Formula One is really stringent, and for example, it requires that they have to have. A operating theatre on site they have to be able to do surgery on site, this is the level where you have to look at to be at a track to, to host what we describe as the pinnacle of motorsport, it is as we said this would be a record breaking calendar of 23 races this year I, we normally are around 20 to 21 races and this, this year 23, I think potentially they've padded themselves the calendar out and expect that there probably will end up being only 21, 22, given some of the
1: COVID situations going on. But that might be me being a bit cynical. Yeah, and I think it'll be nice to go back to some of the circuits this year that we weren't able to go to last year. For instance, places like Japan, Brazil, amongst others. And due to COVID-19, we weren't able to visit all of these countries and some of the circuits that produce the best racing out of all of them. So being able to go back to those should be exciting and yeah, I I think you're right in the sense that they are giving themselves a little bit of uh, headroom in order in case some races are cancelled which I think unfortunately will be the case simply because especially the situation in Europe is deteriorating at the moment so perhaps some of the early European races may not go ahead but it means that yeah we have the capacity almost certainly to have a full season
0: yeah so i think uh, as we mentioned a little bit earlier there and last year we went to lots of of tracks in europe because traveling and running formula one in other places at the time was very difficult and it meant going back to some of the older tracks and is similar to zandvoort we mentioned earlier. And you said that the cars might be too big and make the tracks feel small, which leads us quite nicely into, into the cars and the understanding of why we call it Formula One. Formula One is a Formula Series where there's a rule book is given to the teams, and this rule book defines the cars that they can build. And so, this rule book is interesting because we, we call Formula One the pinnacle of motorsports, but it's kind of the pinnacle of motorsport within the rules that, that are set out. And it is—it's really nice as an engineering challenge because it's—it's it's kind of what you want. It's a, your customer is giving you a really good set of specifications for you to to try and perform with it, and so each team is trying to build a car within those specifications that meets all the rules. And they're also looking at the specifications and saying, "Okay, how can—is there anywhere where there's a little bit of a grey area there? Have they have the the people writing those set of rules missed something that we can manipulate to make ourselves faster?" So there is there's definitely, to some extent, a an arms race. We are currently in what we often describe as the V6 hybrid era. So to follow trends in, in environmental impact, Formula One has been making engines smaller for a, for a long time now. We started with big V12s, inline 12s, W engines, huge engines back in the 1980s. We then shifted to the screaming V10s that... Uh, of probably our youth which are, were the last very loud huge big engine f1 cars and now we've been transitioning down through v 8s to v6 type hybrid cars these have a v6 so six cylinder engine it's a 1.6 liter with a hybrid electrical power unit. they're also turbocharged engines um and in this period the dominant team have been mercedes uh, they've they got ahead on the development of the engine and chassis for this period and have been performing exceedingly well. They have been running a concept which has also been described as a low rake, so the car looks nice and flat, and other teams have either been following that or they've been running a high rake, where the car looks a bit more angled, if you look at it on, in profile. It's been described as quite boring, the racing of the last five or six years, with, with Mercedes winning six constructors championships in a row and to some extent it seems like the FAA have been trying to to bring them back to heel a bit to try and make the racing more exciting and so this year there have been some significant rule changes to make the cars a bit slower I think that's uh, an- another thing that can get quite confusing
2: about F1 is the, is the number of different rules that are and aren't applied sometimes and uh, and w- when rules are coming in, and and I, I think we'll probably get onto it later about the design of the cars and development tokens and things like that, but it, it's, a,
0: it's a very difficult world to navigate. <laughs> what was originally going to happen this year was they were going to move to new regulations that were trying to make racing more exciting by making the cars more easy to follow each other. Because we're at the uh, we're at the pinnacle of motorsport, a huge amount of effort goes into the aerodynamics of these cars, and it is aerodynamics that wins you championships nowadays. It used to be early in the in the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, Ferrari described said aerodynamics was for people who couldn't build a good engine, but sadly, even they have now uh, agreed that aerodynamics is king, and the what that has meant is that the cars use a huge amount of different approaches to aerodynamics, which, which have meant it's very difficult for cars to follow each other. So they've decided the FIA have put together some regulations that were originally planned to start in 2021 uh, that will now start in 2022 to try and make cars following easier. Those would also have come with new tyre regulations. And one of the big um, issues that has come up is that they're extending the current tyre regulations to for another year, longer than they originally planned, and last year we had some issues that the tyres weren't weren't being strong enough to keep up with the cars anymore. It's Pirelli do a huge amount of of work to try and make the tyres fit within the rules that, that the FAA give them. And I think it's it's useful to note here that Pirelli could produce a tyre that would last the whole race and could produce a very fast tyre that would, pre- would last the whole race. But that would be a really boring thing for them to do. So they set degradation targets to meet where the the tires performance should reduce over time so that we have exciting racing. I know it feels a little bit manufactured uh, and it is, but it is it's it's useful and it helps us to have have some really exciting racing. But it is an arms race and the the more you can work the tires the the faster you go. So the over time the teams are making much improvements in downforce which comes from the aerodynamics which makes it which works harder than the tyres so this year to try and help Pirelli the FIA had made some drastic changes to the uh, regulations to try and take some of the load off of the tyres and they were aiming for about a 10% drop in downforce which is a huge change in the aerodynamics and aiming for a pro- approximately one second slower lapse on average now the teams knew this was coming and will always try and uh, get around this and try and gain back some of that advantage and some of them claim to be back to where where they were at the start of last year in terms of uh, aerodynamics.
2: Yeah, I I think the point about wheel the uh, tires is is quite interesting the way you say it's sort of manufactured these days because there was a there was a point in history I think it is it's getting on for well quite a long time ago that they they did um, stipulate that they had to have the same tyres for the whole race Uh, and and we've also gone through the transition from in-race refuelling to improve safety so I think the, the FIA do constantly look at the ways that they have to increase the competitiveness between the teams in terms of the constructors and the drivers and innovation in both and
1: challenging both and also the safety of of all the teams involved absolutely and one of the things they've introduced i believe from this year if not definitely from next year is that in a similar way to the nfl where at the end of the season the worst performing team gets the first pick in the draft for the next year in f1 from this year the worst performing team will get the most time in wind tunnels compared to the best performing team meaning that they can do more development and learn more about the car compared to the team that's won. So that should mean that over time there is this compression between the top teams and the bottom teams because the top teams aren't able to advance as much as they could with equal amounts of wind tunnel time and the lower teams are given more than they would normally be able to, meaning they're able to catch up faster. So... I think that's a very positive move and it slightly moves away from what's been the case pretty much since I started watching and if not before that, where it was essentially the team that could invest the most in development and research was able to ultimately produce the fastest car and therefore create, have the, have the winning car and the winning driver. So with these changes where... You're starting to see an evening of the playing field I think we could get to that point where it is far more competitive because when you look back at the last 10 15 years it's really been each era has been dominated by a single car and that doesn't always produce good races and good racing so any efforts I don't think this is too artificial as well because of course there are some things that you could put in which make The whole racing needlessly artificial, but I think limiting development time between teams is one that won't, at least on the surface, cause one team to be severely detrimented compared to the others, but should give this gradual evening.
0: It has kind of also been combined with with also the uh, cost cap, which will be coming in uh, next year, where which is trying to both even up the playing field with between teams which is great and also reduce the the cost of of Formula One in general because it has been that it's very difficult for an independent team to have any impact when you have Mercedes-Benz who can throw as much money as they want at the problem whereas now it is kind of Mercedes can only spend a certain amount which which would be useful I mean they will also do everything they can to invest in the meantime to try and give themselves a competitive advantage going into that. But, but it does mean, going forward, that that development and that they, we might get some evening out
1: along with this draft-type system for development. It should mean that teams have to be a lot more efficient with both their investment and their time, which will lead to innovation in its own regard anyway, simply because... When you're, when you're being limited on how much money you can spend, you can't just throw money at the problem and, th- and by that also throw essentially computing power at the problem. So if you have to be efficient, it will also lead these teams to put more effort into not just finding the best solution to the problem, but the most efficient way to get to that solution.
0: it's a really good time to be watching f1 because it is very much a transitional time and that we are start. we are this year we have a lot of new regulations which are we're learning and learning our way around in terms of cars but also next year is going to be a huge shift and the combination of of new regulations the freezing of the engine regulations which will do a lot for reduction in costs for teams um it's interesting to see the approaches of different teams saying okay some we're focusing on twenty twenty two because that if we get good development and good car for twenty twenty two that sets us up for make four years of potential prosperity versus some teams who are still developing this year's car as well alongside and it will i think it will be a year where where things are unpredictable and we might be able to get a little bit more exciting races, especially in the midfield, which has been historically has been probably where some of the most exciting racing has been a lot of the time there is one front running team and that has been has been the case pretty commonly throughout the years there's there's a lot of rose tinted spectacles within uh, within most sports where you look, oh, it was much better 20 years ago in reality it probably wasn't admittedly it might have been a bit more exciting because there was a lot more retirements because a lot more reliability issues but nowadays we're a lot more reliable and we have a lot less rep- retirements it seems less in- exciting but there is a lot more overtaking and things like this but it will be interesting to see this this midfield and the battles that go along in the midfield.
1: Yeah, definitely. And we've already discussed a few of the teams, or at least mentioned them by name. And I think the top two teams this year will be Mercedes, as they have been for the last seven years, and then also Red Bull, who were dominant for three years before the hybrid era when Sebastian Vettel won three consecutive championships. They've also been slowly building. They had a a few very poor seasons right at the start of the era where their engine supplier simply wasn't able to provide an engine good enough to compete with Mercedes. Whereas now, because these engine regulations have been broadly the same for the last seven years, it's meant that Mercedes, who of course were out in front at the start, but you also have Renault, you have Ferrari, and Honda have all now developed engines which are on par, if not in some cases perhaps even more powerful than the Mercedes engine at the moment. So it's meant that pretty much all of the cars have the same power in them and therefore the differences between them has come down a lot more to the aerodynamics and the chassis and that's somewhere where Red Bull have always been strong in their history. So now they are perhaps the fastest team if not on par with Mercedes, and I think those two are going to be fighting out for the championship between the two of them for the rest of the season. And then below that, we have, I would say, six teams of the 10. So we have two at the top, which are pretty much out ahead of everyone else. And I'd say there are perhaps six teams that are all pretty much even, and any of them could score or could place between 4th and 15th, 16th so it could be that if you have a bad day you, you go miles out of the points and on a good day you're right up there with the best so I think that's where you're going to see the greatest racing because they're all so close and then finally at the bottom we have what are probably the worst two teams at the moment and that's Haas which we've mentioned who are focusing on their 2022 car now and have been poor for a couple of seasons and then Williams who have Historically, are one of the most successful teams in Formula 1 and have seen success throughout the entirety of their history, but over the last three to four years have really struggled and I think are on an upwards trajectory. Yeah, I think they're a sad example
0: of what happens to the independent teams recently, just when you don't have that much money behind you. You are so limited in the current era, and hopefully that will be something that's brought back by the 2022 regulations.
2: Yeah. So I think we've talked a lot about the the teams and the the cars for this year. So what's happening with all the drivers? I know there's been a lot of changing around of seats and possibly some bad blood in there as well and so so what does everyone think about the seat changes this year?
0: It has been the most exciting driver market or silly season as we as we call it in in quite a long time. So to to put the line up in the, in the Mercedes in the front, Mercedes the dominant team have have Lewis Hamilton now with 7 world titles equaling the great Michael Schumacher and breaking records on almost a weekly basis this week it was the most laps led uh, and continuing to push out the most uh, race wins in history so that's amazing, alongside him is Valtteri Bottas the flying fin um, who has historically performed well but hasn't really challenged Lewis Hamilton and I think is is considered a number two driver by most people. He, he has said it's his selfish year, but I have a feeling that Mercedes are very fair with their drivers and they're fair in saying that the, the driver who is in front will always get the first pick of the strategy or the tyres or everything else and it does require Valtteri Bottas to perform well and to be in front for him to get that choice and to have the opportunities so next up we have the Red Bulls and their team I'd argue is led by Max Verstappen who is a Dutch young Dutch sensation, the youngest ever driver on, in Formula 1 I think the youngest ever race winner I believe who is a huge talent but who started his career with quite a lot of inconsistency but has now come out to be probably the one of the most consistently talented drivers. He's a little bit more reserved, he's a little bit less polished in terms of his press, I'd say, than, than most. But he prob- is probably a future world champion as long as we ca- he gets in the right car and isn't always racing a, a Lewis Hamilton. I think that we would have had a proper world championship challenge from last year had the reliability held up as it could have done. And alongside him is a, is the first new seat in Perez, Checo Perez, who last year was with Racing Point, a team that, that no longer exists, exists. But he took over the seat from Alex Albon. Uh, Max Verstappen is historically very challenging on teammates, and teammates do not tend to perform well alongside him at Red Bull. There's a lot of debate as to whether that's because the car is built for for Max and uh, and... The other drivers have to live with it, whether they. But I think to some extent that's true, but I think also it's. He is similar to Michael Schumacher in that there's always mind games and, and he's very demanding and difficult to, to line his up against. Perez is a, a race winner and has performed, has been probably one of the best drivers over the last few years. But, so it will be interesting to see how he, he stands up at Red Bull. Next up is McLaren the orange cars and they have the young Lando Norris a British driver who's generally well liked he came through he's the twitch, twitch generation of drivers who during lockdown last year were were driving lots on on sim, sim racing games and, and giving us lots of content from that but he, he's a very likable character and has been improving over the last year, couple of years this is I believe his third year in F1 he took a podium last year, which was which was a big step forward, and I think and has been performing pretty consistently for for McLaren and seems to be their eye for the future. They've also brought in Daniel Ricciardo, Daniel Ricciardo, who is again a very lo- likable Australian driver, who spent a lot of time with Red Bull and then took an opportunity to to develop a car at Renault, and surprisingly moved to to McLaren uh, this year, but has been. Looking good, it's a partnership we're all looking forward to and in the first race at least, McLaren looked like the
1: number three team David, do you want to tell us about Ferrari? Ferrari, again, well the team that was completely dominant when I started watching Formula 1 with little drivers such as Michael Schumacher and have certainly waned in the last few years again, a team that struggled to come to terms with the hybrid engine regulations in 2014 and developed a very fast car a couple of years ago that was I think had a very interesting interpretation of the rules and considering that it had to be settled in court was perhaps not entirely legal in the way that they were I think well people suspect they were burning oil in the same way that at the same time they were burning fuel meaning that they were allowed to burn extra fuel, get extra energy and therefore have more power in their car. Because that got settled and caused them to change their engine last year, they very much struggled last year. They finished sixth out of 10, which is their worst season, I think, since the 1980s, when they were, again, very poor. So this year, it looks very promising for them. They have their two drivers being Charles Leclerc, who was their driver last year and is, again, a very young driver but shows a lot of talent and a lot of potential and I think if he gets in a very quick car which the Ferrari has the potential to be he could again be a future world champion. Alongside him is another driver which you'd say now is perhaps more experienced but is still very young in Carlos Sainz who is the son of a legend of the rally driving world in Carlos Sainz Sr. He should bring both a lot of pace to that team but also maybe a bit more experience compared to Charles Leclerc. Yeah,
0: it's a it's an interesting lineup and Sainz leaving McLaren where he had built kind of a really nice relationship and was very supported was was kind of an emotional moment. It's the first time ever I think I've really seen a team appreciate a driver and be so nice when on him leaving ever. It was a really interesting one. Next team up is the new team in Aston Martin. This is what originally was Force India, uh, a team that was then bought out by La- Lawrence Stroll, who is a billionaire. This is going to become a theme throughout the team, since so this is uh, this team is bought out by Lawrence Stroll. They have one of the drivers is as his son, Lance Stroll, who um, did have a, a pretty promising junior racing career and has begun to. I think early in his career, he was kind of considered the billionaire son who probably didn't deserve to be an F1 but I think he's starting to show that he he has the talent to be an F1 whether he has whether he's a future race winner or a future champion I don't to be personally don't think he is but maybe in the future he will be I think he comes across less likable and I, I think also I don't know whether that's intentional or not but yeah he comes across less likable than some of the other drivers in the field, but. He does seem excited by this new project. Alongside him is uh, is a new driver for this year, uh, and that is Sebastian Vettel, who who was a former uh, Ferrari team driver, and he was replaced very early last year and had a very fractured season with Ferrari last year, with Ferrari really underperforming, and it was kind of suggested that they they had him out of the door very early and he was not particularly well treated for the last season so he'll be interested in having a a much more successful time this season although it does seem like as a as a team running a Mercedes style low rake car this year they are having more problems and they are being hit harder by the new regulations than some of the other teams so it may be a few weeks before they they catch up but I think potentially we're also seeing that that was more affected by it being a rear dominated circuit that we saw our first race in this year, which probably affects this a lot
1: more than than maybe some circuits will will be interesting to see yeah, and I think as we're moving down through the teams, it's also worth noting that the top teams such as Mercedes and Ferrari are what you call works teams, meaning that they build and design pretty much everything in their car, whereas some of the midfield teams and some of the lower teams could be considered more customer teams, meaning that they design a lot of their parts, but they also receive parts from the top teams. Such So for instance, Aston Martin are able to receive parts of their car, such as, well, the main, the engine is the main part, but also things such as the suspension and the brakes from the Mercedes team, meaning that they don't have to invest as much money because they simply don't have that money to invest in designing all brand new components for their car But uh, so it gives them that sort of extra leg up and this is the case also with teams that we'll get onto such as AlphaTauri, which is a sister team of Red Bull and then Alpha Romeo which is a sister team of Ferrari and all of them are able to get up to speed faster because they're able to get components from their sister teams
0: yeah so probably the next next appropriate team to pick on is the uh, alpine team or alpine renault so alpine is is the probably just rebranded renault car from last year renault came into formula one five years ago or came back into formula one five years ago they've got a rich history with with formula one with World Championships coming when Fernando Alonso was with the team, and Fernando Alonso has re- returned to the team this year after having a period away from Formula One racing at the series, and I think just wasn't enjoying his time in Formula One. He seems, to, although he has a historic tendency of of jumping into the wrong car at the right or the right car at the wrong time. For example, jumping out of the McLaren just as it started to get good. This sort uh, of this sort of thing. So it will be interesting to see. And from the first race he seems to be back up to speed and is beating his compatriot in that car in Esteban Ocon. As a Ocon is a French driver and it seems and is a seems to be a good fit in the in the French team of Alpine Renault. They will be aiming to be at the towards the top of the midfield this year, although they seem they've gone for some new design elements that don't seem to be working so far and they didn't have the best first race, but we will We'll see how they go through the season. I expect that it's a project that generally has quite a lot of investment, so they they will likely perform well in in some future races. The next one is probably our first sister, kind of fairly second team, potentially should we describe it, in Alpha AlphaTauri Alpha Tauri are the, the... We'd almost describe it as the the F1 training training team for Red Bull. It generally tends to be that that Red Bull develop talent, and if they want in, if they want them in Formula One, they get them into the AlphaTauri and if they think do well in the AlphaTauri then they get promoted to the to the Red Bull team. So this team is is filled with Red Bulls' sponsor drivers, in Pierre Gasly, who is an experienced race winner who's spent time in the Red Bull seat, but got demoted in 2019, but has flourished in 2020 in the AlphaTauri and I'm sure will perform well again in AlphaTauri uh, this year, he's alongside a rookie in Yuki Tsunoda. Exciting to, to have a Japanese driver back in Formula 1 again, first since Kamuro Kobayashi. especially in a team that uh, has its engines from Honda, a uh, Japanese sponsor. So, but yeah, this team is, is very much the second team of the Red Bull team, but they do perform and punch quite a lot, well above their weight. It would be expected that Yuki Tsunoda will be, probably be the highest place of the rookies this year. I'd have thought
2: Yeah he was looking Really good at the weekend Very confident On his On his turn ins And overtakes He Did not seem like He was a rookie at all When you look at Some of the other drivers Who were, were <laughs> Had their first race This weekend Which I'm sure We all
1: get on to Yuki Tsunoda Is an interesting one Because He's A driver that Has been Has taken probably The fastest track Through to F1 Of any of the drivers Even Max Verstappen In that I think he only got his license that he could race in Formula 1 at the end of last year so it was literally as soon as he was legally allowed to race in F1 he was put into a seat he, and he's already showing the fruits of that confidence because he's performing well on track and seems very fearless and has a sort of charisma when he's driving which is really nice to see and adds a bit of flourish to the, to the racing so I think he's certainly a talent that I assume that Red Bull Are intending for him To move into the Red Bull seat At some point in the near future I hope that they don't Move him straight away Because I feel that has been the case With a few of the other drivers Particularly Pierre Gasly and Alex Albon Who we both mentioned earlier And they were perhaps moved into that seat And had the pressure Of being in that top team When they were still very young And it meant that if they couldn't cope with that pressure they didn't perform and then have been demoted or in the case of Alwan's case he's no longer racing in F one this year. So I think that especially given that the Avatari looks very fast this year, I don't think there'd be any particular downsides to keeping him in that team for at least a few seasons to give him that chance to get the experience and then move up into a championship winning car when he's ready to win championships and not when he's just still showing promise because at that point it could easily turn into not being able to fulfill that promise
0: it has historically been an issue with with the Red Bull driver program to, so this is a program that starts with from people very young all the way from 10 12 when they start in carts, going into Formula Three, Formula Two, Formula One, and Red Bull have been historically good at developing the talent in lower formulas. And as soon as they get to Formula One, they seem to not be particularly good at managing it, and they end up with burning people out and putting hugely talented drivers, and uh, not not giving them their potential. But hopefully, they are learning to manage that, and we shall see. <laughs> the next team on the docket probably coming up is Alfa Romeo I'd say uh, Alfa Romeo is another it's an interesting team, it's a, it's a Ferrari probably, a Ferrari customer team for engines and also a team that that tends to have drivers from Ferrari management or who are managed by Ferrari, they they also have a junior program similar to, to Red Bull and so they want to get their, their drivers into a car in F1 but maybe not the the red Ferrari car. This year, their drivers are Kimi Räikkönen, who is entering his twentieth year in F1. Who who just does it as a hobby. He's also he's a great foil in that he knows so much. He's been in every era. He's he's succeeded. He's a world champion. He's a multiple-time race winner. He has all the experience. So to be alongside a rookie or a young driver, he is a hugely important guy to have there. He gets the setups. Sorted, and and he does seem to be. I don't think he's there playing mind games like some of the more experienced drivers are. I think he genuinely is there because he wants to be there because he wants to, he enjoys it because he enjoys battling with people on track. And yeah, he's he is a he's a interesting driver and very and good fun. His 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 media conversations are a joy. He's very. I think he's the opposite of what you'd expect from a media trained person, right? He very monotonic he he only says what he wants to to the media uh, and is, is a great listen always a great listen comedy gold on, on sometimes and alongside him he has Antigino Venazzi, so the only Italian driver on the grid a hugely talented driver but with issues with consistency he's been over the last two years, he's been the best driver on the first lap out of any, anybody. He's so good at taking places on the first lap. But he just has moments where he will crash in a good position. And he needs to get that out of the system. And I feel like this year is his last chance. There are too many uh, Ferrari driver, uh, development drivers sitting in F2 waiting for a seat to appear in F1 for him to underperform this year and still get a seat again next year.
1: Yeah, and, uh, that, and then that moves us on to the final two teams, which I discussed as being the backmarkers when we were talking about the teams, and that's Haas and Williams. And Williams have kept their driver lineup from last year, meaning you have George Russell and Nicholas Latifi.
0: I think it's unfair to call them the drive the backmarkers. To be
1: fair, uh, they were they were they've been backmarkers for the last couple of years at least, and yeah, George Russell is a Mercedes development driver so he's sponsored by Mercedes and many believe will be the next in line once Mercedes change either Hamilton or Bottas be that because one of them retires most likely Hamilton so I think he's many expected him to be in that Mercedes seat this year and he did drive one of the races last year for mercedes when lewis hamilton had coronavirus and he was put in place of him and performed very well although i won't talk too much about it because it still hurts me emotionally to this day um, what happened to him so he's looks supremely talented in a car which is obviously not as fast as it could be and alongside him is nicholas latifi who's the canadian driver who i don't think yeah is perhaps not as quick as him and certainly that has been the case in qualifying and on race days where George is usually much further up the field than Nicholas is and it is probably the case that he's there mainly because of his sponsors which bring in a lot of the money to that team in that sense it's a good thing especially because it means that that team can stay afloat and provide a car for both the drivers not just for Nicholas so I think George is benefiting from having that other driver simply because of the money he brings in. And then finally we have Haas, which is, yeah, I, I think safe to say probably going to be the worst team this year. They've already given up on their development and they also decided to bring in two new drivers this year in Mick Schumacher, the son of Michael, who is a legend of Formula One, and then Nikita Mazepin, who... Again, like Nicolas Latifi, is probably there because his father has bought his way into the sport. Although, in the case of Mazepin, he wasn't the fastest driver in Formula 2 last year. And he certainly wasn't the most endearing to fans, given his allegations of sexual assault, as well as his general demeanour around when he's both driving and off the circuit has meant that he was a very unpopular decision in being given a seat this year and hasn't really shown any justification, especially in the first race, for being in that seat, given that he qualified last, having spun on both of his qualifying laps and then crashed out three corners into the race, causing him to retire early. So I'm certainly not his, his fan at all. And I believe that there are better drivers that are still in Formula 2 that deserved to be in that seat compared to him this year.
0: I uh, I agree to some extent. I I think he has performed well enough in Formula 2 to be considered for an F1 seat. And I think there have been drivers in F1 before who have performed worse than him in F2. So there is a huge amount of criticism for him and... Uh, this heightened significantly after his performance in the first race where he he really didn't cover himself in glory and crashed the car after two or three la- three corners but having seen the onboard of Mick Schumacher who is a who is undoubtedly a hugely talented driver I would suggest the crash isn't the thing we should be upset about him there are plenty of problems with Mazepin that As a person that we we can have and the and things that we can say about and the reasons he shouldn't be an F1, but that car looks undriveable even in a talented driver's hands. So I think yeah, I don't. I think we can criticise him for for who he is and some of the things he's done in his past. I I think he is marginal whether he should be an F1 driver based on talent, but. But yeah, I would argue that the just because he crashes, and I think they will end up crashing a lot this year, the houses just because it seems like there's not going to be much any development on the car, and the new regulations have significantly affected the stability of that car. It looks like as soon as you hit the throttle, it's going to lose the rear end and crash into things.
1: Yeah, in that sense, I kind of feel sorry for the other driver, which is Mick Schumacher, who was the fastest driver in Formula 2 last year, won the championship, and is clearly following pretty well in his father's footsteps. And is a Ferrari-sponsored driver, meaning that I think people perhaps wanted him to go into the Alfa Romeo car this year.
0: It does, looking back, does not look like the best decision, does it?
1: Because he was definitely in talks with both. And I, and I think it will be the case that at the end of this season... Certainly, he'll be able to move up perhaps to Alfa Romeo, and in a couple of years' time, Ferrari will be his final destination, I believe. Although, given that they have two young drivers in their lineup, he'll have to be performing very well for them to decide to get rid of one of those two, I think. Very true.
0: So that's that's the look at all the teams. There are probably a few other elements and the races that we should should tell people about. I think one of the big things is points of difference we've talked about before and overtaking it a little bit. So safety cars, um, which is probably something we should talk about, and and probably DRS. So safety cars are after an incident on track, a crash or maybe some debris getting onto the track, the safety car can come out. This is something where a, a normal road car comes onto the circuit and the the drivers have to slow down and they have to they can't overtake and they have to collect together and they'll collect up behind the safety car along. Around the circuit, and we'll, we'll follow it around the circuit in race order until the the car is removed, or the, the crash car is removed, or the debris is removed, and it's safe to race again. This is a, can be a really critical moment in the racing, given that it gives a huge advantage for taking a pit stop in it, it while under safety car conditions. This is, you can understand this because going down the pit lane is slow, but if everybody else is going slowly as well, it you lose a lot less time. The other thing is DRS. DRS, you're here mentioned a lot. This is the drag reduction system. It's something that's been implemented over the few last few years to try and improve overtaking and racing within Formula One. It does this by reducing drag on the car. A drag reduction system by opening a slot in the rear wing. You'll see it when it happens. There's a big hole appears in the in the back of the car to reduce drag on the on a straight you can only use it if you're within 1 second of the car in front of you so it's for use in when you are having an opportunity to overtake it's been something that's been implemented to try and get around the the following cars is hard problem that we that we mentioned earlier the red lights on the back of the cars something you will see that's not a brake light it does look like it it's not a brake light uh it has a similar purpose brake we don't put brake lights on the back of F1 cars uh, for several reasons, uh, a, it's a you wouldn't want it to have a competitive advantage to know when your person, the person you're racing with, brakes because it would kind of be a little bit unfair. But also, it would be a flashing light when you're at going 300 kilometers an hour and trying to concentrate on braking and, and spotting a braking point would probably not be a good idea. What that red light on the back of the car that happens a lot of the time is it says that the car is going into energy recovery mode. So it means, it often happens when you're under braking or towards the end of a straight. It means that the, the big battery in these cars, the hybrid element of the cars, is extracting energy from the turbochargers, from the brakes, from those elements, and is recharging it. Because the cars are fastest when they are getting energy out of the battery, of the engine, of the turbochargers, lots of, all of that energy is going in. But you have to regenerate that energy at different points. So the reason they have that flashing light is it because it means that drivers can can see when other cars around them are potentially going to be going slower than they might expect because that regeneration is happening. It's a safety tool, but it's useful for us when we're watching because it means you can see that either if the driver is doing lots of regenerating, they're trying to build up lots of battery power for a fast thing to happen in the future especially if you're following somebody and wanted to overtake them you'll see a lot of drivers do lots of braking lots of red light on the back of their car just before they go for an overtake because they want to build lots of energy in the battery to give them lots of extra power i think that you could spend lots of times understanding the tires is the other thing that your tires were you would hear tires described as soft medium and hard it's in each race you get three compounds of tires the soft medium and hard soft tire fast lots of very fast, but doesn't last very long. Medium, kind of a compromise. Hard, lasts a long time, maybe not as fast. And the combination of those tyres, you have to use at least two of them. So you can't just always use hard tyres or you can't just always use soft tyres. So it's getting the combination of those tyres together to give you the fastest route is uh, is what they're always aiming to do. One of the things
2: that was talked about a lot is the undercut. I, I think... At least I would like that explaining a bit more because uh, it, it seemed almost arbitrary when they were pitting and when they all suddenly pitted together because they were afraid of being undercut. I think that's, that's one of the things I
1: haven't quite grasped. The undercut is a process where when you're about to pit, you're on older tyres, so you're generally going a bit slower than you would be on brand new tyres. So the idea is that if you pit a lap before your person in front of you, when you then go out of the pits, for that lap that you then do, you're on brand new tires, which can be a lot faster compared to the other person who's doing that lap on older tires and therefore slower, meaning that if he pits that following lap, you'll have made up so much time because you're on those quicker tires and brand new tires that when he comes out of the pit lane, you'll be ahead of them because you've had that quick lap on that fresh set of tyres. And this can vary between circuits on whether this is actually effective or not, just depending on how abrasive they are and therefore how much slower you are on old tyres compared to brand new tyres.
0: Yeah, it's uh, running and the car behind is not good. It's hard on your tyres, your brakes, and all components. So if you can make an overtake without having to sit behind somebody for a long period, it's always a good thing. So probably other good things to point out with, with Formula 1 is that there is a, a wide community of things that go along around it. Just because the, it isn't the weekend and you can't watch the race, that doesn't mean there isn't some some beautiful content. And for that sort of question, like how does the undercut work, there is a great source, which is the WTF One uh, YouTube channel. They have a huge amount of like explainer videos, really short, like good explainer videos for either new regulations, uh, why certain things happen on track, what's ta- how tactics work, how certain parts of that sort of work, thing work, and they have a really nice, personable podcast with people who who make. It very understandable for for anybody who's coming to F one, and to, they really tell the stories of the paddock very well. And that's a that's a great listen to uh, if, if you want to. If you wanted to go more on the technical side, there is a YouTube channel called The Race. They have some technical editors who have previously worked as aerodynamicists in F one, so they can build a, they can give a more of a understanding of specifically the aerodynamics of the cars and potential and some of the more technical elements and that's really useful uh, if you're interested in that side of things and with to some extent the uh formula one being the pinnacle of motorsport but also the pinnacle of being a an engineer's it's the uh, series often won by the the engineers it is useful to have that that kind of understanding a little bit of what's what's going on and it's it's for me very interesting the the next one I would like to highlight is uh, Drive to Survive, a Netflix series, a grandiosely titled Netflix series that has been running for the last three seasons of F1. If you have, if you are wanting to start getting to the sport, I would thoroughly recommend it. It's heavily over dramatised to what uh, actually happens, and it's quite difficult to understand because they don't do everything in order. But it does kind of give you a lot of the stories of that happened in the last three years. It gives you an understanding of what goes on behind closed doors what's behind the scenes gives you a bit more of a personality of the drivers see who you like who you who you might want to support and all that but yeah it's it's an unrivaled look in terms of you get more access than than you might ever really do for for formula one drivers and finally i point the you towards the formula one youtube channel the the f1 youtube channel is actually really good I wish a lot of other sports were this good at managing a YouTube channel and providing stuff, providing content for people. There are highlights of the race. There are different bits of regulation. There's lots, anything that might be worth talking about, they'll probably put a video up. But they also do exciting things like give you the highlights of the F2 races, um, which are the development and feeder series for Formula One, which happens at the same circuits as F1 but uh, they race on the Saturdays, they do shorter races with, on a spec car where the car is the same for everybody and it's just the setups that change I mean there is some debate about who has the best engines blah, 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 in that series but they are pretty much the same and it's great to see the future talents and the people who are going to be in big big in F1 in the next five years racing and there, there is, because the cars are so close together in terms of abilities in terms of being pretty much the same vehicle they are a lot more exciting lots of overtakes lots goes on uh, and that's a really exciting series to watch
2: yeah I I can definitely attest to following uh, the race it seems to have really nice visualizations of the airflow and they they do really nice uh, comparisons between this year's aero features and last year's ones and, and they're, they're always really on point with their stuff. It's, it's good.
0: It's very true. So, hopefully we've given you a little bit of an insight and a guide into uh, how to watch an F1 race, how to get into the sport. Hopefully you'll be watching the next
1: race. When's the next race? In three weeks' time. In Where is it? It's So, the next race is the Emilia-Romagna race at Imola in Italy, which is another of the historic circuits and is happening in three weeks time as we record this or just under three weeks time as we record this so after easter we should expect the next race to happen
0: hopefully it's an exciting race and hopefully you enjoy well thank you very much for listening have a lovely evening and good night